you got your Bibles, turn to Haggai. It's kind of hiding at the end of your Old Testament. Turn to Matthew and then turn back a couple of books. Let's open up to Haggai. We're going to be in the second chapter of Haggai. Like I said, it gets lost in your Bible. It got lost in mine this morning a little bit too. Right before Zechariah and Malachi. So if you turn to Matthew, turn back. We're in chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we'll look at this within the context and think about this subject. Back at it. It's time to get back at it, right? Reviving the vision in the seventh month on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai by the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, and He's the son of another fun named there, Jehozadak, the priest, to the remnant. That's everybody else that was there saying when, uh, saying this, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? To put it in modern vernacular, you ain't seen nothing yet. Father, we ask you to bless your word. May your spirit speak to us through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I remember the drought of the summer of 1988. One reason I remember there being a drought that summer is because I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to work with uh, Jackson Electric. I was a groundsman, not a linesman. But they would hire college help for the summer, and you could work for... Um, good money for a college guy back then, especially. And uh, the summer of 1988 was the hottest, driest summer that I remember. And one thing I remember about that job is I looked forward to lunchtime every day. I still look forward to lunchtime every day, but I remember looking forward to lunchtime because you could eat in about five minutes, get off your feet and rest a little bit. And uh, sometimes if you found a good shade somewhere and you could just lay back uh, and, and get in a 20-minute nap. You thought you had it made. But the uh, foreman was always there to remind you it was time to get back at it, time to get back to work. And you might have been thinking, man, it's hot. I'm tired. But if we don't get back at it, somebody's going to be without what? They're going to be without power. Somebody's going to miss out because we didn't get back at it. You know, in church, sometimes we, we get that way. You know, the, the Bible tells us not to grow weary in well-doing. But sometimes in ministry, in our service, in our passion, serving the Lord and getting after it, we just need a break. We need a retreat. We need to just take a breath. We need to relax. But I want to encourage you, in those moments, when you need those moments, and you do need those moments, in those moments, don't grow so lethargic that you don't hear the voice of our heavenly foreman saying, it's time to get back at it. And the thing when it comes to the vision that God has given us as a church here at Trinity, last week I talked about your personal walk with God, your personal relationship with Christ, and that's important. We'll get back to that a little bit today. But I want to build on that because I think we forget to see ourselves as part of something bigger. The church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. And I can hear a voice from heaven saying to us as a church family today, Let's get back at it. It's time to revive the vision. Haggai, the second shortest of all the prophets, 
gives these messages in these two chapters over a period of four months in 520 B.C. 50,000 Jews had returned from Babylonian captivity. And they had returned because they had volunteered to go back to build the temple. If you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you find two great books of leadership. But Ezra the scribe, Nehemiah, that, that great statesman and, and lay leader, working together to get everybody, let's get back to Jerusalem. We're no longer under the bondage of captivity. We can go back and we can have the opportunity to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls. That was their purpose. That's what they had come back for. But after coming back, they had been sidetracked. As a matter of fact, they had started working on their homes a little bit. Everybody was kind of building their own homes. They were starting to rebuild their own lives. And in the midst of all that, they forgot what they came back for, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls. They had forgotten to put the kingdom of God first in that process. And so Haggai comes on the scene, and his exhortation to the leaders as well as to the remnant was to get back at it. They had gotten so busy doing and making a good life for themselves back in Jerusalem. They had forgotten why they were there. Let me say this. Personal well-being is important. Your personal, spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being is important. But why is it important? It's important because you are God's creation. You are here on mission for him to do a work for him, and that's why it's so important to take care of yourself spiritually and physically and emotionally, personally, But in the process of all of that, don't forget to see yourself as part of something bigger. Your family is important. Your family is to be a priority in your life. You're to take care of your family, serve your family, provide for your family, minister to your family. But why is that? It's because your family is to be a part of something even bigger called the kingdom of God. The body and the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as a family, as individuals, many of us need to get back at it. Matthew six thirty three, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God uses Haggai to stir them up. What did he do to stir them up? Let me just give you three things right quickly this morning, and we'll be done. First of all, he gives an exhortation from the past. In the verses we just read, Haggai in verse 1 first had to hear from the Lord, and that's obviously important. We don't need somebody coming on the scene claiming to be a prophet that hadn't heard from God, and that happens from time to time. But Haggai He's heard from God. He's gotten a word from the Lord, and it's the Lord himself, Yahweh God, who had called this people, formed this people. He says, here's the word I have for you. And speak, first of all, to the leadership. He says, I want you to go to Zerubbabel, verse 2. And I want you to speak to not only him as, as the governor, but speak to Joshua. And we know that also in that crowd were those like Ezra and Nehemiah who were great influential leaders. He says, speak to the leadership. It's so easy, and I'm saying this as your pastor and asking you to pray for me, it's so easy as leaders to be distracted from the main thing, what God has called us to be about. All of us can be tempted to get caught up in our own little world and miss out on what God is calling us to do. We can get distracted from the vision. But he also says, speak to the remnant. Who was the remnant? Everyone who had volunteered to come back. It was the promised remnant from the days before the captivity when guys like Isaiah, great prophets of God, said, listen, you're going to go through this great time of persecution and you're going to go through bondage, but you know what? There's going to be a remnant that will return. Well, that remnant was back. 
And he says, speak to that crowd, those volunteers, those lay leaders, and stir them up. You know, Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us of why God puts leaders in the body of Christ. He gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists, and that last one there, I believe, is what his calling on my life is, pastors and teachers, or it's the the Greek word pastor-teacher. And then he tells us why he put leaders in the church. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for what? For the work of the ministry. He gave the church leadership to equip the saints. Here's what it doesn't say in Ephesians chapter 4 and 11 and 12. He doesn't say, God gave the church spiritual leaders to do all of the ministry. That's not what it says. He says, God gave the church the spiritual leaders to equip the saints through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and through modeling it in their lives, equip them to do the work of the ministry so that together we are a team for the glory of God. And so he tells Haggai, stir up the leaders, but also the remnant to get back at it. There was a church in the New England states, which used to be the center of great awakenings, that had to close its doors. And somebody tacked a sign on the door to the church that simply said this, gone out of business. And somebody else had written under where it said, gone out of business, we forgot what our business was. It's so easy for us to get away from what God's called us to be about. And I want to ask you as a church family this morning, as part of the body and the bride of Christ, that that body for which Christ gave his own life for, do you need to get back at it when it comes to kingdom work? Have you kind of taken a break? Have you fallen asleep under a shade tree somewhere and it felt so good or you got caught up with your own personal affairs and family and everything that's going on? That you forgot that in your personal life and in your family life, you're to be part of something even bigger called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and that we're working together for his glory, for his purposes, for his mission, until the whole world hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting with our own community. Have you lost that passion, that vision? So he gives this exhortation from the past. And secondly, I want you to see he uses the empowerment that's available for the present to continue to motivate them. There's, there's not only this exhortation from the past as they look back, they don't just dwell in the glory days and say, wasn't it wonderful then? He says, there's, there's something in the present to be done. And as a matter of fact, in verse 3, he says, who's left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? There weren't many there at that point who were alive some 70 years earlier. There were a few. And he said, those of you who were alive back then, you realize that what you're seeing now, what you have built so far, you've laid the foundation, you've gotten some things started, but it's nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And the vision was was for something to be a little bit better than that. He says, you know, you realize you, you haven't seen anything yet. So what about today? What's in store for today? So Haggai reminds them that the strength and the grace, the power, all of that we we need to get back at it, that has to come from God. He says, yet now, verse 4, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the high priest, and be strong, all of you of the land, and work. What does he say? Get back at it. Get back to work. Be strong. 
Don't give up. Get back to work. It's time to get back at it, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit, that's the key to the source of strength there, my spirit will or is remaining among you. So don't fear, don't, don't be afraid that you can't accomplish this. They understood this principle. The Jews understood this. It was in their hymns as they would sing out of Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 121, a favorite hymn for many today, that old psalm, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They knew where their strength came from. But the strength and the power of God is only experienced through the application of faith and obedience. See, God's strength, God's power is always available. But here's what God doesn't do. God doesn't turn you into some kind of glorified robot, come in and fill you with his Holy Spirit, and make you do something against your will. When you as a volitional act, choose to have faith in him and to experience his power and behold his glory in your life and begin to do, he's not going to empower you for what you're not willing to do. So he's saying here, be strong as you do what I've called you to do. That's what the Lord was saying to Israel. You be strong and you will be strong as you do what I'm calling you to do. Moses saw God's power lead them out of Egypt as they obeyed to leave Egypt. Joshua saw God's power as they entered in the promised land as they obeyed and entered into the promised land. As a matter of fact, he did not even divide the waters or, or divide the waters of Jordan River until they put their feet in the water. When they acted in obedience and said, okay, this is what God's calling us to do. Let's respond with faith and obedience and get in on what he has for us and see him provide at the moment that we have the greatest need. He told Joshua, be strong, be courageous. Have the strength and the courage just to obey. What about in the New Testament, the Great Commission? When did Jesus, I know we love to quote the last part of uh, Matthew 28, 20, don't we? And lo, I am with you always. Man, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is with you always. But what is the context? The context there. It's when he says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all those things that I've taught you, all those things you've observed in me. He says, as you're baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as you're reaching people with the gospel, the good news, in that context, I am with you always. So as they're obeying the Great Commission, they were to be experiencing the power of God. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So as we obey God, as we do what he's called us to do, he empowers us for that work. Ephesians 3, verse 20, when we draw on that strength, it says he'll do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or even think. Some here today, you know that you saw the hand of God and the power of God in the past, but you're missing his touch today. There, there are fe- people that are hearing me preach this morning. You're saying, you know, I can remember a time where God did a work in my life. I remember when God worked in my family. I remember when God did something powerful in the church. I remember those days of revival. I remember it's just supernatural awakening of God. And I just don't see it today. Let me ask you a question. Are you waiting to see it before you respond in obedience? 
Or are you by faith saying, I'm going to walk in obedience and do what God has called me to do? Because if we do that, then we will be empowered for the task that he is calling us to. A Lutheran bishop visited a church. It was gearing up for revival, and they had a big banner, and it said, on that banner, he noticed, it said, come, Holy Spirit, come. And he got closer. He thought, man, they really want revival. This big banner said, come, Holy Spirit, come. And it had a flame drawn above it and, and, and pictures of revival fire that they wanted to see happen in their own church. He says he got a little bit closer. He noticed a little sign just under it. It said, fire extinguisher. And there was a fire extinguisher mounted on the wall. And he thought, that is so picturesque of what people are doing. They're saying, I want revival. I want to experience the power of God. I want to see God at work in my life. It's been a long time. I haven't seen that. But they've got a fire extinguisher called disobedience and lack of faith that they're ready to just put out the fire with. So with words, we're saying, Lord, I need you every hour. And with our life decisions, we're saying, I'm not really that interested And then we wonder why our lives and our families fall apart. And we're assisting the kingdom in no great work for God. It's been said, revival isn't the church being full of people. Revival is the people being full of God. Isn't that true? Revival's not the church full of people. Sometimes as pastors, as as leaders, we think that's what it is. And when we fill this place up, Let's build something else, and, and listen, I, I've got a vision for that. I can see that. But I understand revival's not the church being full of people. It's the people of God being full of God, yielded to God, experiencing what God has as they, by faith, obey the mission he's called them to. So what is he calling you to? What is it that you're not doing, and by not doing that, you're forfeiting the power of God on your life? Number three, he gives them an expectation of a promise. This is another reminder, by the way, but an expectation of a promise. Verses 6 through 9. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. You might underline that phrase in your Bible, the desire of all nations. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's going to provide for all this. The, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What is this promise? His promise is something you hear me say all the time. The best is yet to come. The glory of this latter is going to be greater than the glory of the former. Now, when he begins to talk about all these nations being shaken here, Uh, John MacArthur says this is a description of the apocalypse, that what he's speaking of here is that which will happen in Revelations chapter 6 through 19. And when you read that, it's hard to argue with him. It it does seem like that's when things are really going to be shaken up. But sometimes we need to read Scripture and say, what was was the immediate fulfillment? What was going on at that time? Think about how they had seen the nation shaken up at that time, just as part of their freedom. They had been taken captive by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians fell to the Persians. Things got shook up a little bit. It was under this Persian empire. They're getting permission to kind of go back to their homeland. How long would the Persian kingdom last before Alexander the Great and the Greek empire comes in like a flood? 
And this Greek kingdom, which seemed so powerful, would give way to the Romans. The nations were being shaken up. And there's a Roman empire that would set up a context in this Greco-Roman world for the coming of Christ. And so I believe there's, there's future fulfillment in this text. I believe there was immediate application, but I think there's also something here for the church age. Pastor Ben preached on the life of Simeon last month and how Simeon was waiting with anticipation and he challenged us, are we waiting in anticipation for God to show up in a special way like Simeon was? But what is the expectation here? It goes back to that phrase, the desire of all nations. Some say that that only refers to Jerusalem, but I believe that Jesus Christ himself is being prophesied here concerning he is the desire of all nations. That's why most of your translations have that in all capitals. Because it's not speaking of Jerusalem or Israel, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God would become flesh and stand in this temple, it would be desecrated before that happened by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He would desecrate the temple. Things would look kind of dim, but it would be rebuilt. God would use Herod of all people to, to rebuild what was known as Herod's temple, but this temple would be in place in all of its glory when a 12-year-old son of a carpenter would walk in and teach in a way that would astound the scribes and the prophets of that day. Then as a 30-year-old man, he would return and explain that he was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies concerning Messiah. He would eventually give his life on a cross for their sins, rise again from the grave, proving he was the Messiah. He was the desire of all nations, and he is the desire of all nations. And just in the same way that God was using Israel to prepare a place to get people ready to be introduced with God himself in the flesh, I believe God is calling the church today to wake up and say, get back at it. You need to be introducing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get people ready for his second coming. He is the desire of all nations, but if you're not getting back at it, then the power is being interrupted. We need a vision for experiencing the presence of Christ in a powerful way. I need that in my life. You need it in your life. We need it as a church. A vision for people experiencing the presence of Christ in a powerful way. We need a vision for bringing the lost of our neighborhood, the nations and the next generation to Christ. That's why I'm fired up about the vision for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's a vision for seeing people who probably would not have heard the gospel had it not been for that organization. A vision to see more people introduced to the gospel. See, it's not just coaches and athletes. It's all they influence. And they influence a lot of people in Madison County, Georgia, and in our world. You have a vision for that. Can you see that happening? Was it John Maxwell, I believe, that said, if you don't see it before you see it, you'll never see it? Isn't that good? If you don't see it before you see it, you'll never see it. If you don't have a vision for it, if you're not living for something, the old adage is true. We, we were talking about it in men's fraternity this week. If you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Do you have a vision for what God can do and what he wants to do in your life. A little boy named Jimmy was playing outside late. The parents didn't even realize it had gotten dark outside. It was, they were a little bit oblivious to the time, but it was a full moon, and he was playing outside late, just playing under the moon. Later on, when they called him in, said it's time for bed, he was found to be staring out 
the wind at his moon. His mom said, Jimmy, you got to go to sleep. Little Jimmy said, but mom, I'm going to walk on that moon one day. One day I'll walk on that moon. Well, a few years later, Jimmy was involved in a bad motorcycle accident as a teenager, broke almost every bone in his body, and they wondered if he would live, and he did live. Not only did he live, he went on to become an astronaut. Little Jimmy was James Irwin, one of 12 members of the human race to walk on the moon. He saw it before he saw it, didn't he? He had a vision for something, and when something tragic happened in his life, and something tragic does happen in our lives, does it not? When something tragic happened in his life, it did not detour him from his vision. But what did he do? He got back at it. He got back at it. If you could see the potential I see this morning as I look across this congregation. This morning I walked upstairs, and, and, I'm, and during the, the life group time, I was just up there to get a couple of the, the teenage boys to bring a table down for us. And as I'm up there during the life group time, the, the girls had gone into some rooms over to the side, and there were these teenage boys sitting there. I look across, and I saw all these teenage boys sitting up there in the student center. And I can't remember who I was speaking to, but I said to somebody, I said, look at all these boys. I said, there's enough boys in this room to shake this world for Christ. Shake this world for Christ if they just if they get a vision for it, if they get back at it. You say, well, will they get back at it? I don't know. Will their parents get back at it? Will their grandparents get back at it? That remains to be seen. But I'm going to commit to you as your pastor today, because God has dealt with me on this all week long, I'm getting back at it. I'm going to get back at it. What does that mean? We'll find out. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. I believe the Lord's leading me every year I, I do this, the Sunday before the State of the Union address, to do kind of a State of the Church address. I'm going to be asking you guys some questions. I'm going to be shooting you some email. I want some feedback. I want to know what your vision is. I want to know what God's doing in your life, what area of ministry you're serving in or desire to serve in. But I'm committing to you as your pastor to get back at it and see what God has in store. Will you pray with me this morning?